I'm going to ask you guys to give me a little bit of grace this morning. Here's what happened. Ken was supposed to preach. <laughs> Last night, around 8 o'clock, Ken gets a really big cut from a, uh, some uh, chickpeas that he was opening. He didn't think about it too much until he realized at about 11 p.m. after urgent care was closed that really he needed stitches. So I got a text this morning. He's like, I'm just now leaving the ER at 6.30 a.m. He actually came in this morning. He was like, no, I'm going to preach. I'm going to be good. He came in. He taught the class. I don't even know if, like, if some of you guys noticed. Did he even tell you that he'd been up all night? Okay, good. Anyway, he looked like a zombie. And up until about 20 minutes before the service began, he was like, no, I'm going to preach. And I just said, Ken, hand me what you got. We're, we're going to have some fun today. So <laughs> he handed me what he has. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> I'll probably start with his notes and then we'll just see where it goes. <laughs> Come on, Holy Spirit. <laughs> I've never done this. I feel surprisingly calm, actually. So uh, we're starting a new text for the Lenten Sermon Series. We're starting the book of Job. And if you've read the book of Job lately, you know it's long, it's a little bit overwhelming, it's 50 chapters, and it's a little bit tedious to read because a lot of it is, it's poetry. I'm told in Hebrew it's absolutely gorgeous. But reading it in English, it's like a lot of Job's friends are just rambling on and on and on, and you kind of read it, and you're like, oh my gosh, his friends are terrible, and this is hard to read. But unique, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this, and then we'll see what we've got here. Ken writes, Job is a unique figure in the Old Testament, <laughs> that he can help some of us maybe understand how to read the Bible a little bit better. Um, he says he's a character who does the hard work of re resisting a religious mob. He's a poetic figure, he's not a historical figure, and he underwent what Jesus came to expose, which was the tendency of human groups to turn on certain individuals, to blame them for the group's ills, and then to either kill them or drive them out or marginalize them. Right, so this is the process of what we call scapegoating. Um, the book of Job begins with a prologue, chapters one to two. You know what, I don't think I can preach his sermon. It starts with chapters one to two. I, so I've been doing a um, Bible study with this for like twice. So I'm just going to talk to you guys about what we talked about. As we approach the book of Job, Job is complicated, complicated because it has this weird prologue, the first two chapters, and then it's got this little epilogue, which is like the last chapter. And they don't really fit with the story. And so what scholars think about the book of Job is that it probably started as oral history, and this oral history may have even predated the stories that we know of, like the Abrahamic stories and some of the historical stories from earlier in the Bible. And so this story had come down and had been told, and most of the Old Testament scriptures weren't actually written down until about 600, 500 um, years before the Common Era. And they were written down in the context of the Israeli people had just come out of Babylon, out of being in exile, out of their land, back to Jerusalem. And they started to sort of recover their Jewish identity and to reestablish who they were. And so they were telling themselves the stories that had been part of their people for hundreds, maybe even 1,500 years. And then they wrote them down. So Job comes in the context of being written down in that era, but the actual story of it is probably earlier than most of the other stories that we have. They think that that prologue, the first couple of chapters, which start with a weird courtroom scene where you see God, and then you've got this adversary. It's like a personified character that we'd call Hasetan. So in the, the Old Testament, Hasetan, Satan. 
um, is usually describing a force that's at work among humans. And it's a force that's like a force of accusation. It's a force of judgment, we might say. And when that force is personified in scripture, it's often personified with a capital S, right, in the form of Satan. And so we see this personified Satan come into this courtroom with God, and Satan's like kind of making a bet with God. He's like, look, there's this guy named Job, and he looks really righteous, and he looks like he's a God-fearing man, but I bet if you take away like all of his riches and everything that he has, he'll curse you. And God pretty much says, okay, I'll take that bet. And so that invites a lot of questions right off the top, doesn't it? Like, okay, what kind of God is this? That seems like a pretty weird thing to go on. So is there this personified force called Satan who's allowed to do whatever they want with God's permission and God's kind of like, are we a game to these big forces? Well, if you take those things away, if you take away the prologue, which they think was added later as a sort of way to try and frame this story that's very uncomfortable, If you're left with Job 3 to, I think, 49, but don't quote me on that. Um, And it really starts with Job having kind of a a suicidal rant. Job chapter 3. And this takes God out of the equation, um, at least that courtroom scene, and Job has just lost everything. And he's just this raw human before God, and he's like, essentially, like, I feel like I should die. And I think a lot of humans have had at least moments of like that, even if we haven't been quite that depressed or that downtrodden. But when you read Job chapter three, there's this very human, very relatable um, space to it. You're like, I know where you're at. You're in this very raw place. And then the rest of Job is just showing his various friends coming to him and essentially telling him, you must have done something wrong. Why don't you just admit it? Because clearly, you know, if you just were a good man, if you were a righteous man, if you did everything that God wanted you to do, then you would be fine. So that leaves us with a really complicated, um, like, what do you make of a book like this? Because it doesn't really actually resolve. At the end, you have God finally sort of speaking to Job, but God is basically saying, yeah, I'm God, like, I'll do what I am, you just won't understand me. And you're like, okay. It's like the most depressing book. Um, I think what's helpful with Job is having an understanding of kind of where it fits in with the larger narrative of scripture. So I ascribe to a view, and we talked about it a little bit last week, um, that there's an unfolding revelation of God at work in the world. And that God is slowly unveiling God's self to God's people as we can understand God. And that this element of God, it's called the Logos in the book of John, this part of the Trinity that incarnated into Jesus in the Christian tradition, that this Logos has been at work in all the traditions revealing God through various ways. And so when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, we see that there's, I remember this one book that I read, it was called, um, it's by Leon Cass, The Beginning of Wisdom. He's actually a Jewish ethics professor, I think. But anyway, he talks about how the Old Testament is almost like an education of the people, slowly out of um, polytheism into monotheism. And then out of monotheism, you start to get a little bit more of an understanding of like including the outsiders, that you're getting more of an understanding of um, God as a God in certain little spaces. You'll see that God is a God for more than just the Jewish people. Like you'll see the book of Ruth and the character of Ruth, who is actually not 
a Jewish woman, but she becomes sort of a matriarch, one of the matriarchs in the Jewish faith. And you always have multiple voices that are going on in the Old Testament, right? And that's the thing about um, the Jewish scriptures, if we start to understand them, how they're supposed to be written or how they're supposed to be understood within the Jewish context, is there's like internal self-critique that makes sense. So there's like conversations that are going on and they don't try and edit out the ones that are problematic. And so I see Job as one of the, it's one of the earlier versions, one of the earlier revelations of God that is starting to come out of this newly monotheistic culture. In fact, Job, it never even says that he's a Jewish man. Um, the names of his friends are actually not Hebrew names or Jewish names. They're names that come from like all over the place. So it's this sort of story that's going on in the Middle East. It's this, like, okay, we've got a monotheistic God, and it's asking the questions in the very earliest times of, well, what is this God like? And why do good people suffer? And if God is good, what do I have to do to not suffer? Right? These are all of the enduring human questions that um, no one has a good answer for. Right? But Job, I think, invites us into this conversation, and it invites us into looking at some of the other scriptures to see these places where people have started to try to answer these questions. So like next week, I was going to talk about, yeah, why, why do we suffer? Why, how is God good when there's suffering in the world? And I have some angles at it, but I think if anybody tells you that they've like got the answer, they're selling you something, right? But the wisdom in that is just trying to wrestle with, okay, well, what do we know about God? And so I think this is an early mirror that we have. Um, this is where, because I haven't prepared, you guys are going to get a really good Doctor Who reference. <laughs> um, if you don't know, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. Doctor Who is a really campy British sci-fi show. It's been going on since 1963. Um, it's gone through various incarnations. Don't worry, you don't need to know all the details. But the character called the Doctor, it's just the character's name, is a sort of, it's an alien, but he's kind of a godlike figure, or they are kind of a godlike figure. And they travel through time and space just trying to be helpful, or to sort of be a doctor where they can, whenever things are sort of going wrong. And the way this, this show has continued to go on for almost 60 years is that um, they, they can kill off the main character, but this character lives on, they, they regenerate, that's what they say. So the character starts to die, and then they get a whole new body, and a whole other actor gets to play this character. So, so far, we're on the 13th character, but there's been two other sort of hidden ones. But anyway, there's been like 15 people who have played the doctor over the years. And so it's kind of a big deal, and I actually wrote a blog post on this last year about how the character of the doctor reflects our changing ideas of the nature of God. And I think that it's very true. Like, your first 12 doctors, all British, older white men, which is fine. But just now, in 2017, they finally allowed the character to become a woman. And I don't want to give too many spoilers because I know some of you are a little bit behind. You're like a season behind. But they are adding some people of color. They're giving a back history where there were some people of color that were the doctor in a previous regeneration cycles. So anyway, it's like this changing view, right? It's almost like we project our own view of what we think a godlike figure would be like onto them. And that has evolved. So like when you look at Doctor Who over the last 60 years, you're like, oh man, there's a lot of changes in terms of how we view this character and how good is this character? And is this character sinister? Is this character um, all powerful? 
Is this character able to change all of time and history? So I say all of that to say that I think that there's an element of human projection that also goes on to God, right? And that that is an unfolding revelation that we have through scripture and that I think is ongoing, right? Jesus said that he was in the spirit that would lead us into all truth and I think that that spirit is continuing to lead us into all truth, which is why we've started to have an understanding or an imagination for being able to imagine God as maybe female or as non-binary, and that then we can go back and we see there were these nuggets in scripture that are like, oh, that's, that's always been there. There's been these little revelations, but now we're able to kind of embrace it a little bit more. And when we look at Job, there's actually some remarkable sort of, I call those little oases almost in the scripture. Um, Job is old and it probably survived because it wasn't completely, you couldn't totally see these nuggets there. Um, but Job is the first victim, really, one of the oldest victims in the history of humankind in any literature, poetry, um, who maintains his innocence to the end, and you hear his voice, and he doesn't cave in and say, you're right. And that's a really remarkable, that's a really remarkable piece of literature to have survived. So I think one of the unfolding things that we see with Job, something that was helpful to me, is I actually finished the book on Gerard and Job. So where Gerard was looking through um, the lens of like, man, maybe Job was actually a scapegoat of his community. And does that make more sense of this text and of this story? And the more I look at it, I'm like, oh, I think, I think he's right. And that's just that we've gained yet another lens to be able to look to try and uncover and find God in this story. I'm not sure where to go from here. Um, you know, when I was back there kind of reading through this, I mean, I didn't even get through his sermon, actually. I was thinking it might actually be helpful to just tell a little testimony of how this has worked in my own life, especially given that some of you maybe don't know this, and some of you who have known me a long time do. But I grew up in a really conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist, Pentecostal um, church, and home. And so the way that I was taught to view scripture was that it was supposed to be read literally, that it was inerrant, that you could find any answer that you needed there. And as most of you have probably found out, that pretty quickly falls apart. For me, that first started to happen when I went to college. I was a young earth creationist. I was the kid that was taught to argue with my eighth grade science teacher in public school. I was a twerp. <laughs> I was the kid who gave my version of the left behind sort of view of revelation for my entire junior year to the FCA at my large high school. I, I, I don't have very many friends from high school. <laughs> my old church friends. I was a little bit like, um, I was taught to be self-righteous. I was taught to, to understand that my view of God was the view and that if I didn't tell other people this view that you know they might perish. They might suffer. Um, so there I am. I'm in college. I started dating this guy who was, um, he was a German guy and he was an evolutionary biologist. And so we would just clash and clash and clash. So clearly that didn't work for all kinds of reasons. He's also gay. We're still friends. <laughs> Both of my prom dates and my first boyfriend in college. Anyway, um, <laughs> safer, I guess, if you're not out to yourself. 
Um, so I remember like, that started a process of me starting to think through like, well, gosh, maybe this understanding that I have isn't quite right. And I was sitting in an anthropology class that I had, Sue Kenyon, God bless her, she was a British anthropologist, and she kept talking to us and I kept arguing, and I kept arguing, and I kept arguing, and I finally, I remember her showing us the um, National Geographic video of Jane Goodall. And I was watching sort of this, this uh, her work on the evolution of chimpanzees, and I just remember sitting there and slinking down and being like, oh my God, evolution is totally real. And I didn't know what to do with it. And so what that did to me was it actually sent me into a tailspin of feeling like, I always describe it as like, I felt like my faith was like a house of cards. And it was like somebody had pulled out the back card and then everything sort of collapsed. It was like, okay, well, if that's not true, if Genesis isn't true, why should any of this be true? Which actually sent me into a fairly deep depression which is where I found myself when I moved up to Ann Arbor. After college, I came up and I worked in PR and marketing for Borders at their corporate office here in Ann Arbor. And I was kind of wrestling, like, I loved God. You know, I'd had these sort of prayer experiences with Jesus when I was a kid that meant a lot to me, that still mean a lot to me, that made me feel like, well, gosh, was I just, um, was I a little unhinged? Was there something else that was going on with my mental health? I just started questioning everything, which gives me so much compassion. I want to speak especially to the mama bears. Like all of a sudden, like your worldview had been working for you, and then you get this one thing, maybe your child comes out to you as queer, or maybe you start to come out to yourself. I see a nod here from Carol, and all of a sudden everything goes. And I remember that feeling of being so frightening. And so I have this like extra dose of compassion for people, um, when that happens, because I feel like I took 10 years, 12 years to sort of slowly figure things out, and sometimes people find themselves just sort of immediately like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to find something that works. Um, and it made me, like, not want to live. Like, that's where I was. And so I came up, and I was working for Borders, and I remember I would, I used to be a pretty serious bike rider. I don't know, Laura's looking at me, I'm like, you might remember, I used to ride my bike a lot, and... Um, and I would ride in different races and things. And so I would get out, and I would, every night when I came home, I would just ride my bike for miles and miles, and I'd come home, and I'd take a Tylenol PM and a glass of wine and just go to bed and get up and do it all over again. And we had some family friends who had moved up to Ann Arbor, and um, they actually, one of them was working at Borders and helped me get my first job. And so they knew my parents, and my mom kept calling me and bugging me and saying, why aren't you going to church? Are you going to church anywhere? Why aren't you going to church? She was worried about my soul. So <laughs> I started coming with my, with my friends um, maybe once a month. And I would, this was uh, actually at the vineyard. Ken was the pastor. And I would come in late and I would kind of sit in the very back or in the balcony and I would get out of there early as soon as I could. And it was basically to touch base. Tammy and Dale saw me. And then I could be like, okay, they can tell my parents I'm going to church. But I remember I was coming in and slowly, as I heard Ken preaching, he was so helpful to me. He would incorporate science. And it was like, I, it was like permission to ask the questions. And so that started me on this, this initial um, journey of starting to say, okay, maybe it's actually more faithful to read the text in the genre that it is. Like the beginning of Genesis is poetry, just like Job is poetry. And we read poetry differently than we read history, don't we?
I mean, if you read like The Road Less Traveled, there's not actually literally two roads, right? If you're reading The Raven, there's not a real raven sitting there that's communicating a truth, but in a different way, right? And so that started to, you know, sort of enrich in my, my spiritual life, and I started to give myself permission to open up and to start communicating again with this God that I thought maybe could actually be there. But I realized how much of sort of my instincts, my really conservative instincts, were still embedded in me. So at one point, I, I was able to preach, I think because I had taken over some of the overseas outreach stuff, and so I gave half of a sermon, and Ken and... Um, his former wife, Nancy, who passed away, they saw me and I think they were like, oh, she's actually pretty good. And so I don't know what they were thinking, but (laughs) they had me over for dinner. And I remember them saying, I was like 26, and they were like, you know, we think you can plant a church one day. We'd like to mentor you and like teach you how to pastor. You can ask us for anything. Um, Like we see a gift in you. We'd like you to be able to do this. And I remember I just said, I don't know if I think that women can preach with Nancy, who was a pastor there. Oh, I'm so sorry, Nancy. You know how sorry I am. And so it took me like a year. Of, it sent me into another dive. It was funny. It was like I had given myself permission to read the Bible in a culturally relevant way or genre, but I hadn't yet sort of let myself imagine that some of these other constraints could come off. Because you know, sometimes we know we've got these like instincts that are still there and that some of you might feel like, is this okay? Is it okay to ask this? Is it okay to think this? Is it okay to not you know, ascribe to everything that you've been taught. And so I took another year and I started looking into some of the scriptures on women and leadership and it blew my mind and blew my world apart. And I was like, oh, I actually, wow, there's a lot going on here. I think I'm okay with this. So I went back to them and so we ended up pursuing that path. And then later on, I'm serving overseas. I've been the international pastor for some time and I started to come out to myself. And I mean, I was so conservative. I had repressed that stuff so far down. And it wasn't even until I was 29, maybe 30, where I actually could say it out loud. And it was because a friend I was living with said, are you gay? And I was like, no, no, no. And I remember like going to my room that night and thinking, oh my God, that makes so much sense of like my whole life. This can't be, ugh. And I had always kind of known, my family had been asking me for years, but I just thought, I'm a pastor, like I'm on this trajectory. I can't, this will be so inconvenient. And it was, but (laughs) everything in me was like, no. And so I took another year to research the the clobber passages. It's like, I already felt, as soon as I came out to myself, as soon as I was like, yeah, this is what's going on. I, I, I luckily didn't have any inclination to go do like conversion therapy. I had enough gay friends. I was a music, music minor undergrad. I was like, I just know that doesn't work. And I was also on the mission field at the time, which that's a whole other story, but um, a lot of missionaries are gay, little known secret, unless they're married. So I ended up with like, I was doing these Sunday services with all of these other um, women, all seven of them gay, trying not to be gay. And I remember looking at them and as I was coming out to myself being like, "I I don't want this to be me in 20 years, 30 years. Like, this can't be, this isn't life-giving. I can't do this. And so then yet another layer of the onion started to come off. And it's this journey that we're all on. You may not have started quite at that space in your own journey, but we all have our own sort of quibbles. 
And it's really a larger conversation that we're having between ourselves and God and our communities, right? And so as you feel these onion layers start to come off, you feel more and more freedom and more and more life. And to me, that's what Jesus told us is, that's what we're supposed to look for, right? It's the fruit. What's the fruit that's going on in your life? Is it leading you into things that are life-giving? Like when I look at my life now, like I met Rachel and my world just flipped upside down, but we both talk about like before we came out, I didn't even know how miserable I was and how lonely. And then after, and it's like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't trade this for anything. And asking people to trade this, to sort of like give it up to try and be something that I'm not, it's just not possible. I just wouldn't do that. That's why most gay people have walked away from the church altogether. It's just not even a choice. Um, And I want to help other people find that space. And I know that some of us are maybe newer and you're coming into this space where like I had 12 years and you're maybe one year into your journey. I just want to give you permission to know that it's okay to feel disoriented. It's okay to feel um, scared. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, um, God, I don't even know where you are, if you are, or what you are, but here I am. And then just invite the Holy Spirit to continue leading you. And so I think that's the, the magic of Job, if I can try and bring it back to Job. Um, yeah, it's a genius move, right? Come back. Uh, <laughs> is that this process has been ongoing for humanity, and that when we look at the book of Job, it's in that early process. It's almost like where I was um, unraveling my science issues in my early 20s. That's, what it, that's like where Job feels like in the placement of sort of this revelation of God and humanity. And when you see it like that, it can actually be a really astounding text. And I think it's one that can invite us into some of these larger pictures or these larger questions that are part and parcel of our faith. Who is God? Is God good? Um, what is God saying about the victim? What is God saying about the way we victimize others? And that those are all very relevant for us. We often end with a time of meditation, um, either guided or silence. And I think this morning, let's just invite the Holy Spirit or God, however you understand God, to come into this space um, and just speak to our hearts if there was anything that resonated or if you have any just like questions and that space where you're at in your journey, just make time to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit about where that is. And then I'll end us in a couple of minutes um, with a prayer and a blessing. People and babies make noise, little noise is okay. Come Holy Spirit.
So Jesus is the, the full manifestation of this God who is love. It's the full revelation. We just ask that you would teach us on our own journeys, no matter where we are in our path. And we confess all of our fears and our confusions and our wonderings before you, and we just ask that you would turn your face toward them and that you would be gentle with us and that you would be kind with us and that you would gently lead us, you know, like the, the good shepherd that you describe yourself as, that you would gently lead us a few steps further on our individual paths. And along this way, that um, you would help us to find this freedom to ask questions about who God is in the same way that Job did. And that we can ask the hard questions. Where were you at when I got my diagnosis? Where are you when there are all of these sufferings that are going on in the world? What kind of God are you? And so we make that space, Lord, within our hearts and our minds and our spirits, and we just ask that you would teach us because you said that you would send the Spirit to lead us into all truth. And so I ask that as we make ourselves vulnerable with you and that as we converse with you in these coming weeks, that you will lead us even a little bit further along that path and that you will teach us uh, more about who you are so that we can also reflect the goodness of who you are in the world around us. We thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So.